Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Hilma off Clint. The Solomon R. Guggenheim Museum in New York is showing Hilma off Clint Paintings for the Future, a survey of Swedish artist Hilma off Clint. The exhibition features more than 170 of off Clint's artworks with a focus on the artist's most significant period from 1906 to 1920, when her interest in spiritualism helped push her toward non-objective imagery. It's the first major solo exhibition of off Clint's work in the United States. It was curated by Tracy Bashkoff, who will be my first guest, with assistance from David Horowitz. The show will be on view through April 23, 2019. The exhibition's terrific catalog was published by the Guggenheim. Amazon offers it for $40. On the second segment, Lawrence W. Nichols joins me to discuss Franz Hall's Family Portraits, A Reunion at the Toledo Museum of Art. But first, Tracy Bashkoff, after a break. On view through December 30th at the Wexner Center for the Arts at The Ohio State University, Micheline Thomas, I Can't See You Without Me, explores the artist's ongoing dialogue with authorship, identity, desire, and the historically charged relationship between artist and muse. Each of the Wex's four galleries is devoted to one of the most significant muses in Thomas's career, including the artist herself. Among the more than 50 works presented are her signature rhinestone-encrusted paintings, as well as collage, sculptures, installations, and a new multi-channel video collaboration with Grammy-winning artist Terry Lynn Carrington, created with support from a WEX Artist Residency Award. Don't miss the chance to see one of the season's most anticipated exhibitions at its only venue. For more information, go to wexarts.org. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents Tudors to Windsors, British Royal Portraits from Holbein to Warhol. Organized in partnership with the National Portrait Gallery London, this sweeping survey of some 150 paintings, sculptures, and photographs spans four dynasties and 500 years of British royal portraiture, exploring a changing nation through artists' depictions of monarchy. On view October 7th through January 27th, only in Houston. Visit mfah.org royals for more. Bringing together more than 80 objects, the Nasher Sculpture Center's The Nature of Arp provides a long-overdue look at the achievements of Jean Hans Arp, one of the most important and multifaceted artists of the modern era. On view at the Nasher Sculpture Center in Dallas through January 6th, 2019. Learn more at nashersculpturecenter.org. The Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth presents a major survey of works by Laurie Simmons, showcasing the artist's photographs spanning the last four decades, from 1976 to the present, a small selection of sculpture, and two films. Simmons's career-long exploration of archetypal gender roles, especially women in domestic settings, is the primary subject of this exhibition, and is a topic as poignant today as it was in the late 1970s when she began to develop her mature style. Organized with full support of the artist, this retrospective exhibition features over 130 works. On view from October 14th to January 27th, 2019. Visit themodern.org for more information. And we're back. Tracy Bashkoff, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thanks. Great to be here. Before we get into Hilma off Clint and the show, the show itself, I think it's useful to point out that this is the first major American show of her work, that she's enormously underseen in the U.S. relative to her achievement and to her primacy in 20th century abstraction. So at the risk of asking you to tell a story that you're going to have to tell a lot in the next few months, how did this happen and why? 
Uh, you're absolutely right about her not being seen as frequently here in the U.S. She's been included in some group exhibitions and smaller shows. And actually, really, the first time she was shown to the public at all was in in the U.S. on the West Coast in 1986 at the Los Angeles County Museum of Art when Maurice Tuckman included her work in an exhibition that was on the spiritual in art about abstract painting from the 1890s to the 1980s. And while I didn't see that exhibition, it's a catalog that has long lived right over my computer on my bookshelf, easily in reach, partly because of my own work on Kandinsky in the Guggenheim's collection. But that's where I first encountered Hilma Afklint's work was in getting, you know, in that catalog, in that exhibition catalog. If I could interrupt just for a second, LACMA has put that catalog online. We'll have a link to it on manpodcast.com. Yeah, it's a, it's a gem of a book. And so that's where I saw Hilma Afklint's work. Uh, Maurice Tuckman actually worked at the Guggenheim in his past and is someone who I've been connected to over the years. And and so, you know, the, the, the work has sort of never completely left my mind, but the opportunities to see it were rare. And I remember being very taken by the work when it was shown at the Drawing Center here in New York, along with the work of Agnes Martin and Emma Coons a while back. You know, Hilma of Clint's story was just so connected to the history of the Guggenheim and sort of the eccentric path that we talk about in our own institutional history, that it just always seemed like a perfect fit for the museum. You know, that's how I came to to the work and, and the desire to show it here in New York. So Offklint's work wasn't shown for 22 years after her death. And really that, that she's as prominent as she is and as many painters are, are gaga about the work as they are. So why wasn't it shown for for 22 years after her death? And how did she kind of come to that decision? Yeah, I think it was even longer than that. She dies in 1944, which is the same year that Vasily Kandinsky and, and Piet Mondrian pass away. And she, in her notebooks uh, leading up to her, you know, before her death, in her notebooks, she indicates that she would like the work not to be seen for 20 years past her death. And in her lifetime, it was very infrequently shown, really just shown once that we know of. And so, you know, the the question of of why she came to the decision of, of holding the work so close and private is a very rich and complicated and interesting one. She felt that the world wasn't ready to see the work, that the audience for the work didn't really exist yet and that it was going to still take some time for people to understand 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 the messages in her work and so she chose to keep this work very private and I'm talking about the work that was paintings and and drawings that she did as part of her spiritual practice that are largely abstract and abstracted works. She also worked, you know, she was a trained artist, and so there are um, portraits and medical illustrations and landscapes and other works of hers that she did show during her lifetime and that she sold, in fact, to earn her keep as well. Botanical illustrations from the 1890s, which indeed 
kind of figure in in the later work, which I think we'll probably get to. You mentioned Af Clint and her interest in spiritualism, her and how that was kind of a root of of her painting practice starting in the 19 aughts. Certainly the the 1890s and the early 20th century is in many places in the Western world a, a, a real period of explosion of spiritualist new ideas and practices. What was off Clint's interest or um, focus, if that's the right word, when it comes to, to spirituality and spiritualism and how does it end up in the, in the work or how does it inform or motivate the work? Right. Up Clint had a, a, you know, pretty traditional religious upbringing and, in about 1879, she began to be interested in spiritualism when she was about 17 years old. And that was the moment where it became, uh, you know, where spiritualism, as you mentioned, it was very popular in Europe, across Europe. In fact, I think in, in that year, one of the prominent British mediums visits uh, Stockholm and is, you know, quite in the public eye. And so she she has a, an interest, sort of as was popular at the time, in spiritualism to begin with. Her sister passes away in 1880, and, and people, historians have frequently talked about that as also kind of fueling her interest. But what's very interesting is that her initial interest, which may have been in keeping with other spiritual practices, spiritualist practices that aimed to communicate with the dead and people in an afterlife changes. And she really begins to use spiritualism instead as a means of accessing, you know, a transcendent realm and spirits on a higher level and a, a, a different level of consciousness. And so she, she kind of moves away from the idea of channeling or spirit or communicating with the dead to a different, more broad version of spiritual practice. And she meets regularly starting in the 1890s with a group of women. They called themselves the Five. So it was Hilma Afklint and five, um, four others met regularly to conduct seances and to pursue this communication with this other realm. And in doing so, she she and, and the others were, that were channeling used the practice of automatic drawing and automatic writing and used even an instrument called a psychograph which allowed the messages and the communication with these other spirits to be come through their hands and ultimately, you know, be recorded in these drawings on, on paper. And so there are notebooks that contain many of these, these works that were either done directly by, by Af Clint or by the group as a whole or other members of the group. And you know, I always think of these years of her working in this practice of, of drawing automatically really is coming at the same time as she is also receiving training at the Art Academy in Stockholm. And so, you know, I like to think of that time of her exploring this automatic practice as a way that she was kind of freeing up her hand and, and allowing herself to, to step away from the type of practice that she would have been you know, meticulously working on in a representational and careful realist manner in art school. And so art becomes very much part of of her spiritualist practice. And in 1904, during one of these seance sessions, one of the spirits contacts 
of Clint and discusses the idea or, or offers the idea that she would be brought into this large project in her life that would take up many years of her time and that would ultimately be built upon these paintings that she would produce in service of the communication of truths about the spiritual plane. So before we kind of talk a little bit about off Clint in in art history, let's talk about some paintings. You gave us this great summary of spiritualism and, and how it informs the work. Are there particular off Clint's that you think are particularly useful or, or helpful for understanding how she migrated spiritualism into oil on canvas? So of uh, Clint is working in series. And so, you know, she really delves into various ideas and kind of pulls them apart and repeats motifs and forms from one work to the next. And I think that practice of, of concentration and working in a serial manner is a, a way that perhaps she was also looking to communicate difficult concepts and to guide people and lead people with her down these paths. It often brings to mind for me Kandinsky as well, who had, who wrote about in On the Spiritual and Art, you know, his ideas about how he thought it would be difficult for for work to become abstract sort of overnight and that he left representational traces in some of his early uh, abstracted canvases in order to to bring people along in in understanding and i think about that in hilma of clint's work as well and how some of the work feels like she's really kind of working over an idea and really trying to understand it herself. So in a roundabout way to also, you know, to sort of mention that in the beginning years of this project that she undertakes, which ultimately are called the paintings for the temple, and she produces between 1906 and 1915, 193 works. The beginning of these works, she's channeling spirits who are, she she feels are standing beside her and helping communicate messages to her and images that she then puts down on canvas. And so she, in fact, speaks herself that she doesn't know what these ideas are that are coming through to her, that she's not blindly working, but that she is, the, these images and ideas are being painted through her. And uh, that idea of kind of channeling figures and channeling spiritual ideas onto the canvas really sets her up in a, in a position to where the work becomes a focus of her life and something that she spends many years after kind of trying to understand those messages herself. And so really, you know, almost any of the works from the Temple series embody this kind of exploration and this journey that she herself is taking and has and was taking in the production of the works, but also that she's kind of offering people to follow her on. Well, the, the paintings for the Temple series was certainly on my list of things to to bring up. And it's a focus of, of the show and indeed the catalog. And I want to pause for a second and point listeners to the catalog, which is quite extraordinary. Um, it's not just full of the paintings that are in the show, but it's full of archival material and off Clint's notebooks and sketches and student notes. You know, it's the, it's clearly intended to be 
the definitive thing on the artist for the next 30 years, and I'm sure will be. We'll have a link to to getting it on the website. Anyway, back to the paintings for the Temple series. I, I have a guess as, as, as to why you chose to focus on it uh, that has something to do with your building, but I should probably stop guessing and let you explain why you chose to focus on it. <laughs> yeah, it's it's wonder, one of those wonderful, really lovely coincidences, or, or perhaps it was fate. But uh, Helma Afklin imagines a place to view, to show these works, these paintings for the temple. And in her notebooks, she draws some sketches of what that paint of what that temple would look like. And it's a roundish, you know, kind of faceted, but round building that people would move through on a spiral path. There's a spiral staircase involved as well. And it's multi-layered and one would experience the work one after another as you move through this spiral, this symbol that you see over and over again in her work as a means of conveying a journey and a path and progress. And so the Guggenheim, the Frank Lloyd Wright building of the Guggenheim Museum is a spiral, as you know, and one moves through it from from the bottom to the top as you get closer to the skylight and to sort of enlightenment. And we know that Frank Lloyd Wright was very enamored of the spiral shape for the way it fuses kind of form and function and all of the natural associations that it has as well with snail shells and nautilus shells and tendrils. And, and, and in fact, when the first director of the Guggenheim, a woman, woman named Hilla von Ribe, who was the person who worked as an art advisor with Solomon Guggenheim in building his early collection and really steered him away from the traditional landscapes and portraits that he was purchasing to the work of the avant-garde of Europe that she had just came to the U.S. from. And so Hilary Bay uh, commissioned Frank Lloyd Wright to build the Guggenheim building to hold this collection of non-objective avant-garde painting. And she asked Frank Lloyd Wright to build a temple to the spirit. And so here we have Hilma of Klint's work occupying this this building with its grand intentions and um as well and so it really is just one of those synchronous lovely moments to bring together these figures that were all sort of important in those early years of modernism you mentioned the guggenheim's history and ribe and let's do a little of grounding and placing of off clint in the time and place and art world of her making. So in terms of chronology here, she starts making abstract works on paper around 1904, abstract paintings in around 1906. What does she know about developments in European painting at, at that time and then later as she moves forward? It's, it's a little hard to say, and, and that's, so far the record doesn't really let us know what she thought about other artists of her time, and I, I wish that it did. I, you know, I, that would have been something that I would have loved to have opened a notebook and, and read, but, but we do know, you know, contrary to some of the way that she's been portrayed in the early, in her early exhibition history, where she was made out to be sort of kind of reclusive and perhaps never left Stockholm and only spoke Swedish. We know now that that is actually not the case and that she did travel and that she did, you know, certainly wrote in German. We even have seen a letter that was written in English as well. And so, 
you know, so our idea about her being kind of, you know, working by herself, you know, not not knowing anything about the art world is has been we're starting to tease that apart. We know that once she graduated from art school, graduated with honors, the school awarded her a studio to use in a building that was really in the center of the art scene of Stockholm. It's a building where also a exhibition an exhibition of Munch's work took place in 1894 in the you know in a salon/slash gallery that was in the same building as where her studio was. So, you know, also she she exhibited work in the 1914 Baltic exhibition, which was this large exhibition that took place in Malmo, not far from Stockholm. And we know that Kandinsky and Mark exhibited in that exhibition as well. Kandinsky and Mark also had solo exhibitions in and around Stockholm shortly thereafter. And so, you know, she she may have encountered other artists. That said, she was also certainly producing these abstract paintings before those dates that we usually assign to Kandinsky and Mondrian and Malevich and Kupka for their early abstract works. Kandinsky, I think, talks about works from the end of 1913 as being among his first fully abstract kind of non-objective paintings. And as you mentioned, you know, her, her work predates that. We will get to those kind of timeline questions in a minute. But before we do, since, since uh, you, you, we both brought up Munch and Kandinsky and Mondrian and Kupka, do we know if, if they uh, saw her work? Not anything we've found thus far. But, you know, I'm, I'm fully aware, and it, I felt it as, as we were working on this catalog, um, you know, that we're still just really getting beneath the surface of, of her life. First of all, a lot of, you know, myself included, a lot of art historians don't necessarily read um, Swedish. And so her notebooks, her writings are, are, are still being translated in, in bit by bit. And so, but there are people who are out there reading Swedish and reading through those notebooks. There's a wonderful biographer named Julia Voss, who's a contributor to the catalog that is working on a biography of Hilma of Klint. And so she's really making amazing discoveries. And I think that that will continue and, and you know, something we'll, we'll, we'll find out in the future. You mentioned the question of what I'll call primacy in terms of the chronology of the development of abstract painting, which is a phrase I will immediately deny I ever used. So two things about that. One, we, art historians and 21st century art people, love to discuss and debate the question of abstraction versus representation, kind of two polar opposites. You pick one, you pick the other. Was Off Clint interested in that question of one or the other, or was it just painting to her? No, I think in her work, she goes really back and forth between the two. And this is uh, uh, well, just a, a, a personal story. I mean, the, the Guggenheim, as you know, has many works by Vasily Kandinsky in our collection. And I've spent a lot of my years here standing in front of them, talking to people about how he was a pioneer of abstraction and then pointing to the paintings and, re- and pointing out all of the representational and figurative bits in the paintings, because that's sort of, you know, the easier things to talk about in some ways. 
And so it's something that, I, you know, I've, it has always been a, a heavy on my mind and how and how artists move between the two and, and how significant those breaks, you know, if that's something that we lay on them or, or something that was way more fluid for them. Hilma of Clint, in her work, we see works that comfortably embrace floral and botanical forms you know, snails and and tendrils and all sorts of things that kind of move in and out of abstract, of degrees of abstraction. Spirals. You know, you mentioned spirals earlier, another natural form. I mean, lots of organic references, I guess. Right. And then, you know, representational subjects as well. There's a series of paintings called The Swan, in which she goes from full-on representational images of swans, you know, unmistakable swans that uh, interact with each other and collide and and are shown opposed to each other and swirl around the canvases, ultimately becoming abstract forms. And so, again, working in her series as she did, you see her moving from one to the other, but moving back and forth as well. And, and, and so I do think that that she was experimenting with communicating with both figurative and non-figurative forms at the same time. And, and so I do think that whether how, how conscious she was about or how deliberate she was in, in what she was doing, she was certainly tracking different ideas through both representation and, and abstracted means. I'm glad you mentioned the swan paintings. We'll have a bunch of them, I think, on manpodcast.com. One of the things that fascinates me about that series is, so you mentioned she started with with a painting of two swans. I mean, it's two swans, unmistakably two swans. One's black, one's white. Their beaks are the colors of beaks. Their feet are the color of feet. And you can see her abstract away from those two swans. And one of the ways she does it is the colors that are on the swans in the first painting, or the the most representational painting, end up being used in lines and spirals, abstract forms in the subsequent paintings. So she's not just abstracting away from the forms, she's taking the colors that are in the forms and abstracting with those colors on their own too. Yeah, no, the expressive use of color so that, you know, color is sort of freed up from its from its responsibility to just describe things as they are in the natural world and color becomes another tool to expressing something other than what we see around us. It's something other artists were exploring as well and and it certainly comes out in in Hillmouth Clint's work. It's easy to imagine an art historical progression that goes from, you know, Matisse and Fauvism to Kandinsky and Munter and their interaction with Matisse and then off Clint seeing Kandinsky's work and taking that out of it and then extending it. Which brings us to, to, to the question of how we might think of her art historically. There's a lot of really interesting stuff in the catalog about this question, and, and art historians have indeed talked about it a lot in recent years. One of the highlights of the catalog is a conversation that you put together with a group of artists, curators, and art historians in which they kind of have amongst themselves, seven or eight of them, the conversation about Off Clint's work that didn't happen in the 42 years after her death because the work wasn't shown. It's kind of a condensation of of art historical engagement, and it's really, really interesting. So this is all a long way, I guess, of asking 
how do you think we might consider and contextualize her work? Is she the first abstractionist or is the story a lot more interesting than that? I'm going to go with the stories more interesting than that. I think that we like to pick, you know, who's first and, and such, but I think that that question is always ripe for overturning in some form. And so I like to think about her work, the pressures that her existence puts on the way that we have been telling the story of those early decades of the 20th century and what was happening. And that just her her being there, working, making these works, taking the agency that she did to decide who would see these works and making an effort to keep them together and to hold them from from the public in some ways, I think were ways of her being an active force in her in you know in in her career and in how her work would be seen and how you know and the, and the role that she could play in the art world of her time which perhaps was not as embracing of a woman artist of someone working outside those art centers that we're so familiar with in Paris and Berlin and Munich and other places you know, that her existence just puts pressure on that whole story and that it allows us to kind of think more expansively, I hope, about that time period to include artists who were, you know, working in different ways and in different in different systems outside of the the mainstream. I love that way of putting it and we'll we'll borrow it going forward. In that seven or eight person conversation in the catalog, it's either Leah Dickerman or Helen Molesworth. I think it's Leah who who notes that. So Leah Dick, Dickerman did for MoMA about five years ago, kind of an, a, a, a single author, single-ish author presentation exhibition of her story of abstraction and how abstraction happened a show that I thought was was great and opened a lot of doors and created a lot of hallways. Some of the other critical reception was that it wasn't MoMA enough, that it wasn't definitive enough. I thought the lack of of definition was what made it so great. And And Dickerman points out that the number of times abstraction was invented in the early 20th century in different places keeps growing. You know, it's kind of like, well, like, like, like a game of whack-a-mole where abstraction pops up here in, in, in 1904 and there in 1908, and, and everybody has a claim, and some of them knew of each other, some of them didn't, some of them were not sure. And so the way, the way you offer off Clint within that narrative, or indeed lack of narrative, I think is a lot of fun. Leah Dickerman's show was really eye-opening, and, and what I really took from that exhibition were the networks and the inter the web you know the the connections on so many different levels between disciplines and between the artists in different places and people how people moved back and forth or you know and also how people's writing i mean i always love to talk about the early decades of the 20th century and how you know if you were to be an artist of you know taken seriously as an artist you needed to write a manifesto you know and how those then circulated reputations and ideas. And part of that, and what was brilliant about Leah's show was really showing those those interconnections. And I think Hilma Ofklint 
one of the ways that she's one of the reasons that she was perhaps left out of that story had to do with the lack of connections that we you know see or saw at that time we're hoping that those connections start to get illustrated a little more now but that kind of kept her out of i think the story at the time was was that because the work wasn't seen by other artists during her her lifetime that its legacy was hampered and so that's i mean something that comes up in conversation all the time about Hilnoff Clint and her work and is how do we look at her work um, as a modernist whose impact perhaps is most urgently now being felt in contemporary art because the work wasn't seen until, you know, the 1980s, the late mid 1980s. And so, you know, we just, we have to, it forces us to just think more openly and inclusively than we did before because we can't explain her um, and and her impact otherwise. It's been extremely rude of me to refer to Leah Dickerman's show several times without naming it. Uh, it's Inventing Abstraction 1910 to 1925. We'll have a link to the show and to its catalog, one of my favorite books on manpodcast.com. So another one of those questions that maybe is unanswerable, but that I thought about over and over again when I read the catalog, we know that women um, in Europe were crucial to the development and offshoots of abstraction. Sonia Delaunay, um, Goncharova, Popova, maybe even Gabrielle Munter, whose painting never gets there to abstraction, but who was close to both Matisse and Kandinsky in years that they were. Did Offclint know how many women in Europe were, so to speak, playing on her field? Again, not not that we've seen evidence of. I mean, that's it's not there in the record thus far. Though, you know, I have to think that the circles that she was most interested in and enjoying and spending her time in, you know, the intellectual circles that were considering theosophy as a thought process or as a religious philosophy, those were worlds that where women were leaders and, you know, the the whole theosophy movement was based on on the writing and existence of Madame Blavatsky and and then picked up by Annie Besant after that, another woman. You know, these were realms, even the spiritualist realm, were largely dominated by by women. Spiritualists were involved in the suffrage movement in places like London and Paris and potentially other places as well. And so she was she was immersing herself in places where there were where women had some agency and some some power. She herself was the secretary of a group of Swedish women artists of a sort of independent group that formed in the years that after she left uh, art school, after she finished art school. So I don't know that she knew other women modernists that we think of in in those days, but she did know and was had close relationships with other women artists from her from her own school. Another place in Europe where women were achieving and involved at the very top of the field during Offclint's lifetime was um, in atomic research, Marie Curie, Lisa Meitner, plenty of others. Offclint makes a series of work in, uh, I think, 1917 called the Adam Series. First, first question, is that Offclint's name for the series? Did she name it? 
Yes, as far as we know, she she titled things. There are indications of the titles in in her notebooks and writings, and sometimes on the on the works themselves. So, is that an engagement with developments in early twentieth century science? Yes, absolutely. I mean, you see it there, but you see it even earlier in works that are. Um, you know, she, there's a series that's part of the painting uh, paintings for the temple that's called Evolution. She's you know, the, some of the forms that you see in in the paintings for the temple are very reminiscent of the kind of diagrams that we see in scientific publications at the time. Uh, she herself worked as a illustrator for a veterinary hospital for a period of time. You know, she was certainly interested in the sciences of her day, as was, you know, as were the other, you know, the other modernists, for sure. And you see it in the work that you see things that look like electromagnetic rays and uh, waves and, and particles. I, I love that in a lot of the work, particularly the 10 largest, these very large, over three meter tall paintings that are a prominent part of the paintings for the temple, one of the earlier series you see uh, forms that really sort of shift back and forth between the, the macrocosmic and the microcosmic. They, th- they look like cells that are splitting and they look like planets that are eclipsing one another. And, and you really kind of feel the, the presence of her knowledge of, of science, of unseen worlds. Yeah, I, I, this is my fault that, that we probably spent as much time on spirituality as we have without talking about science. So Offclint is making botanical illustrations in the 1890s. Botanical illustrations have their, have their roots and origins in being of service to scientists. In, indeed, botanical illustration migrates very quickly into early photography because of this exact reason. It was a way of sharing trees that were on the Pacific coast of California with, with Darwin or Joseph Hooker in London, things they, they couldn't reasonably hope to see. And and so botanical illustration has those same roots, has that same function. Offclint is doing it in the 1890s, and she's still doing it 30 years later. And the, and, and as you said, there are these other places where, where, where science is, is present in the work. So kind of the last, I don't know, it's not a body of work. I guess it's not quite a tendency. I don't know, the last painterly interest I wanted to bring up is what we in America would call her interest in kind of hard edge shaped abstraction, where off Clint sets squares or rectangles or triangles or circles against each other, on top of each other, has them playing in space with each other, sometimes with what almost looks like an horizon line, other than that they're just gorgeous to look at, and I imagine were a lot of fun to make. What is her interest in in those geometrical shapes and how they played with each other and played with color? You know, we see in those works her engagement with color theory, for sure, things that she was reading. We also, you know, I think one sees, again, a link to her interest in science and diagramming come out in these works also. You know, there's there's some drawings that she does later on where she has realistic botanical drawings on the same paper as she has geometric squares, patchworky kind of diagrams almost that look like, you know, just abstract forms. And well, let me just name that work so listeners can find it on the website. It's Violet Blossoms with Guidelines from 1919. 
and and it really leaves one you know uh, struggling to figure out how these two images are connected and and it's that she was looking for different ways of uh, again like sort of different ways of portraying um, and conveying the essence of those natural forms, but in, you know, how, how their energies existed and how their, their traces and lives existed on these other planes that aren't always visible. I mean, there was something I read in doing some research about, you know, scientific, scientific discovery at the time that was really interesting in that the spiritualists and particularly people who felt they had clairvoyant powers felt that the conveying of scientific matter of things like the uh, atoms and subatomic particles could be conveyed through the personal and through the individual just as they were through scientific instrumentation and that the sensing of something that wasn't visible to the naked eye, you know, sensing that through a human inter, you know, a human medium was just as real and legitimate as sensing it through a Geiger counter or some other means to scientific discovery. And so, you know, the idea that really the, that uh, Hilmoff Clint could, you know, could very well uh, be sensing and understanding things in the real world on a, on a different realm of, you know, a, a different realm than the observable is is kind of a fascinating thought that she felt that she had a way of portraying these other aspects of of things that we we see around us. Fascinating. Tracy Bashkoff, thanks so much for speaking with me. Happy to. Thank you. On the opening night of the exhibition Sally Mann, A Thousand Crossings at the Getty Museum, renowned photographer Sally Mann discusses her book Hold Still, a memoir with photographs. Named one of the best books of 2015 by the New York Times, Washington Post, and National Public Radio, Hold Still reveals her fascination with family, mortality, and the landscape of the American South. Get tickets and learn more about this free November 16th event at getty.edu slash 360. Since opening in 2005, the Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University has been dedicated to building a groundbreaking collection of contemporary art centered on diversity and inclusion. The museum's emphasis is on artists historically underrepresented, overlooked, or excluded from art institutions, with a particular focus on artists of African descent. In this effort, the museum supports global artists of extraordinary vision whose works spark opportunities for thoughtful engagement. Drawing primarily on the collection built over the last 12 years, the exhibition People Get Ready, Building the Contemporary Collection, includes works dating from 1970 through 2018 that address issues ranging from identity to social justice and environmentalism. People Get Ready extends into a second pavilion, integrating some contemporary art among historical works in the collection. In doing so, connections across time, space, and culture become possible and present the opportunity for challenging dialogue. A related mini-exhibition, People Get Ready, Southern Lens, explores Southern culture through the museum's rapidly growing photography collection. An early breakthrough work by Fred Wilson, Colonial Collection, anchors the Arts of Africa Gallery, among traditional works of art from the continent. A painting by Kahindi Wiley is now on view in the European Gallery, 
A work by Pedro Lash reflects upon works in the Art of the Americas gallery. A photograph by Eve Sussman brings a new dimension to the medieval gallery, all at the Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University. The Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents Adrian Piper, Concepts and Intuitions, 1965-2016. to The first West Coast Museum exhibition of the artist's work in more than a decade, this is a rare opportunity to experience Adrian Piper's provocative and wide-ranging artwork, which directly addresses gender, race, xenophobia, social engagement, and self-transcendence. Also on view at the Hammer, Stones to Stains, the drawings of Victor Hugo. Featuring over 75 drawings and photographs from major European and American collections, this landmark exhibition reconsiders Hugo's experimental and enigmatic practice as a visual artist for a new generation of audiences in America. Exhibition details at hammer.ucla.edu. Hammer Museum, free for good. Welcome back. My next guest is Lawrence W. Nichols, the curator of Franz Hall's Family Portraits, A Reunion at the Toledo Museum of Art. It's the first exhibition devoted to Hall's family portraiture. It was motivated by Toledo's 2011 acquisition of Hall's Van Campen family portrait in a landscape and the recent conservation of Hall's three children of the Van Campen family at the Royal Museums of Fine Arts of Belgium in Brussels. The Toledo and Brussels canvases were originally a single painting, as you'll hear Nichols discuss, separated for unknown reasons in either the late 18th or early 19th century. Toledo has reunited them for this show, along with a third painting, a fragment presently in a private collection. The exhibition is in Toledo through January 6th, 2019. The exhibition catalog was published by Hermer. Amazon offers it for $33. Lawrence Nichols, welcome back to the Modern Art Nets podcast. Thank you very kindly, Tyler. As you note early on in your catalog essay, family group portraits are a kind of subset of group portraiture at which Franz Halls particularly excelled. What distinguishes his group portraits from those of other early 17th century Dutch painters? Good question, and there really is a, an answer, a visual one, and, and my response will be also one to family group portraits in the Netherlands before the 17th century as well. The conceit of Hals's 13 group portraits, four of which are family group portraits that we'll have all in our show, Franz Hals Portraits of Family Reunion. The, the conceit that makes the visual conceit, his, his pictorial construct that differs him from all that came before is that he paints an action taking place. He integrates an inward focus and a deliberate theatricality to capture the proverbial fleeting moment of life likeness. Uh, already in 1648, the Harlem, that's Harlem with two A's, the Harlem historian uh, Theodorus Frivelius writes of him as his portraits are, quote, imbued with such force and vitality that they seem to breathe and live. Now, I'm the first to acknowledge that that's a topo, topos. It, it, it incurs about in writing on art. Zari must have used it as well. Von Mander, I know, does did the, the, the great 1604 uh, Lives of the Dutch Artist. But Hals creates something that makes people realize they're looking at individuals, but also persons that have 
a relationship to the others in their image in the group portrait. So there's a dynamic going on. He's accomplishing no less than two things. He's capturing individual likeness and conveying the relationships within a group portrait. Long answer, but Hals was a brilliant man. We'll have images of all four of those Hall's family group portraits on manpodcast.com. So, yeah, let's talk about family portraiture. You, you write, and, and I didn't know this, this was interesting to me, that it stems from donor portraits within the religious painting tradition and then migrates out of that to become its own thing. How Do we know how that happened? I don't, and I, I ask myself that very same question. It's about the autonomy of, of portraiture, um, just like landscape established itself as an autonomous genre in the 17th century, actually earlier in the 60s, still life painting does too. Initially, painters in the North, their major commissioners were the, was the church, capital C. And then in the course of decades and, and half centuries going by, instead of having Mr. and Sons on, on one panel, a wing of an altarpiece, and Mrs. and Daughters on the, on the right, from the vantage point of the sitters, Sinister and Dexter, men always on the Dexter side, in that era, I'm not taking a gender stance here, I'm just pointing out historical realities. Uh, and that plays out also in, in Hals's single portraits or pair portraits we can talk about. But I'm telling you, Tyler, it, it happens in the mid-16th century or even a little earlier, 1520s and 30s, family portraiture divorces itself from a religious context. Family group portraits, once they caught on, quickly become enormously popular. You note that the number of family group portraits made in the 1630s was double the number made in in the preceding decades. Is that just a story of of growing upper middle class wealth, or is there more to it? I think it's it's no less than likely two factors, and I and I can't say this factually. I'm, I'm assuming there was there was growing middle class wealth, as you alluded to. And there was also a burgeoning number of painters out there wet, ready to take on the challenge of family portraiture. Just think what happens after 1839 when photography gets invented and, and photography then lends itself toward group portraiture itself. In the museum I work in here, we had an executive team family photograph, an executive team photograph taken recently. And after the, the mug shot, everybody look at the camera, say, cheese photograph, I asked everybody, please look at your neighbor or somebody else in this photograph, not at the camera. And no one knew what in the world I was doing or why, but I have my designs. I'm going to use that image in a presentation I make here later on when this show opens here at Toledo on the 13th of October. Halls's first family group portrait is one uh, that by now you know quite well. It's the Van Campen family in a landscape. You acquired it for Toledo in 2011. Who is this family, and how is this picture a really good example of how Halls evolved the genre, breathed life into the genre? Heisbert van Campen and his wife were married, we think, in around 1620 three or four, and the painting you've just asked me about that Toledo acquired in 2011 after I spotted it at a dealer in, in 2010 and called it to the attention of the incoming director, Brian Kennedy, who had a wonderful response when I first notified him of it. He said, Larry, I don't even work at the museum yet. And you're trying to have me consider a major acquisition. He certainly knew of the painting. It had been on loan to the 
National Museum of Wales in Cardiff for, for a number of decades. And then, as you said, we, we acquired it in 2011, and we knew we were buying a fragment. Um, so there's a long story here, and the exhibition really addresses that story. We were buying Mr. and Mrs. He was a cloth, cloth merchant from Leiden, had moved to Harlem, and with his wife, they had 14 children that we know of. And what this exhibition is doing is addressing really two major points. Um, we're putting together for the first time ever since the original Hall's composition was cut, and we can talk about that, Tyler, and, and in fact probably should, we're putting together all the components of this composition. One is in Toledo, one is in the museum in Brussels, the Musée des Beaux-Arts, uh, the Museum of Fine Arts of Belgium, with uh, the curator there, Lisbeth de Belli. I'm, I'm co-organizing the show with her, credit where credit's due. She's a wonderful colleague. And then there's an additional part to this composition as well. And if I spoke earlier about Hals putting an inward focus and, and a theatricality, what's going on in the, in the Toledo painting is that mom is gesturing over to three children in the Brussels painting, the smallest child therein in a goat cart. And so some of the children in the Toledo painting are looking out of the image. Mom is looking toward her husband um, and the husband is one of the very few in the whole composition looking out at us. He paid for it. He's proud of his family, uh, and he's establishing eye contact with us. So there's there's an, an activity going on within the composition that ultimately also engages us. And the children on the right in the Brussels fragment appear to be moving toward, kind of simultaneously, their parents and us. That That's right. And so there's there's an interaction in, in, the, in, in the composition, which initially we, we can know had a church steeple in the center, very center of the composition. This family was a devout Roman Catholic family, and that's not an accidental motif right there. I mentioned the painting, it was well known. It, it enters the art historical literature in 1910 when it was first published. It was first exhibited in 1929 in a show at the Royal Academy in London. And by the 1960s, scholars were beginning to also, in further in articles, uh, suggest that it was a pair, uh, a, a, belonged with, not a pair then, belongs with the painting that's in Brussels since 1928. And we lent, our painting was lent in, in 1989-90 to the Hals retrospective. It was London, Washington, and Harlem. What I'm, what I'm citing is that our picture was, has been well known over the 20th century, but what is so very new and what we're proud to bring to our public, both our visiting public here in Toledo and then in Brussels and then finally the third venue of the show in Paris at the Fondation Custodia, the collection of Fritz Lucht, we've identified who the family is, your first statement, the von Kampen family, that's a, a finding of, of emeritus curator and, and a very adept individual in the archives, my friend and colleague Peter Beesbohr. He's identified who the uh, family is. He had an article in the Burlington Magazine in February of 2013 about the family and subsequently has found out more about the family. And this is important because he determined there were 14 children. So when you count up the children in the Toledo and Brussels painting, you'll come to 
with mom and dad, presumably 16 sitters then, you'll come to, there should be 16 in the painting, and in fact, they're, they're 14. And so we know there's even more than the Toledo, Brussels, and one additional head of a boy, a fragment that we are bringing into the show as well. So the catalog includes a digital reproduction of what y'all think these fragments may have added up to before they were dissolved into fragments. Tell me the story of how y'all kind of got to that point of how of how this of how the three things and, and, and a bit more were put together. And we're certainly doing this in a lengthy label wall right in front of the three canvases that we're going to put on one wall cheek by jowl. It was speculated already in the early 20th century that these three may have belonged together, but we have proof. When the purchase of our painting happened in 2011, Brian Kennedy, who, who mustered the finances to make this come to pass here for our audience, I mean, this is a, a very important painting. When I call then living rest in peace, Seymour Slide, the dean of Pulse Scholarship. And I said, should I be buying a fragment, Seymour, meaning having the museum go forward with something that's not a complete composition? He said, you tell that board of trustees they'd be getting eight Hals paintings, not just one. And so I knew it was full speed ahead. And he said, and get Brussels to clean their painting, would you? And Brussels had in mind to do that. We contacted them and said, we're about to buy this. Let's at some point put these pictures together. In the process of cleaning their painting, which took for their internal reasons a number of years from 2011 when we made our purchase to our show going forward here in the time frame we're talking about here, their restorer called me at one day, the curator did as well, and said, Something most unusual has just surfaced as we're cleaning this painting. There's an eye emerging in the upper right. And then they cleaned it further and they realized there was half a head there. And they cleaned it further and they realized in the lower left there was some drapery that was unaccountable for internally within the imagery of the three and a half kids. And more drapery appeared at the right. And so to answer your question, that restoration demonstrate the drapery in the lower right of the Brussels painting is certainly the continuation of lost garments, meaning lost the, the fragment, um, the component of the original composition we don't have anymore, sadly. Here's the clincher, Tyler. In the coming from a private collection in Europe to our exhibition, in the upper left of that canvas, collar painted in. That white collar matches pattern of it, placement of it, matches exactly the collar on the half head that reappeared in the Brussels painting when restored. That's something I hold up in a court of law if a lawyer really me on. It's, it's a factual piece of evidence that proves the, they belonged. So that brings us then to the need to establish where were the two additional kids and they must have been now i'm entering the domain of speculation further to the right in the composition and why don't we have that anymore well more speculation just think logically tyler and any nice listener here 
if from the far right we don't have part of the original composition, and then we have a fragment of the head of a boy, and then we have a damaged but still very impressive painting in Brussels of three and now a three and a half children, and then we have objectively stated, even though I work for the Toledo Museum of Art, a very well-preserved canvas far left, I think the conclusion is there was damage from right to left. Fire, water, smoke, a combination, I don't know. But th those are the facts of, of the status of the preservation of the picture. And the photoshopping that you've asked me about allows us to imagine what the Hals initial composition looked like with Menair van Kampen and his wife and the 13 children that Franz Hals painted. We estimate this painting being 1623 to 25. And then guess what? Five years later, a fourth, 14th child is added to the composition. In the lower left of the whole composition, also therefore the lower left of the Toledo painting, is a, another child. And on his proper right shoe, left as you look at it, that is, is the name Solomon de Bry, the signature of another artist, and the date 1628. Why Hals didn't add the 14th child? we'll never know, or in any case, it's not known. He might have been busy, he might have been annoyed with the family, he might have been unwilling to um, take on the commission for monetary reasons. There is another instance of Hals being unwilling to go up to Amsterdam to complete a civic group portrait, and so the Amsterdam civic group just said, we'll have a Peter Cotta, a different artist, finish it. So there is precedent for this, and it happens in other artists as well, where an additional child is added when biology and life takes its normal course. We'll have images of as much of that as possible on manpodcast.com. It's kind of a remarkable thing to see play out. It's kind of a detective story, a choose-your-own-adventure via painting JPEG and Photoshop. Tyler, we, we thought we would first just put on view in an exhibition the, the Toledo, Brussels, and privately owned head of a boy, but once we realized how fascinating this story was to show... We decided to go and beautifully, um, we received yeses from every loan request we made. So we're augmenting this, this show with the three other family group portraits, one from the listed chronologically, the Cincinnati Art Museum, one from the Thyssen-Bornemitsa Museum in Madrid, and one from the National Gallery London. And also we're including an extraordinary gesture from the uh, Rijksmuseum in Amsterdam, the only known double portrait of adults, Isaac Massa and Beatrice van der Laan, a painting from 1622. So it predates the Toledo-Brussels composition, and it formally, certainly you see precedent in that composition. So we're, it's very exciting what we're going to be able to offer. This has never been done before. It's small, but Hals is, well, you could cite Titian and Rembrandt and Goya and Ang and Manet and Picasso, if you wanted to list the major portraitists in my mind in Western European art. This is small but powerful, and I'm very excited about it. The show also includes two family portraits from the 1640s, one in Madrid and one in London. And they're related in the sense that the backgrounds behind the sitters are, are quite similar. They, they, they both feature a wood, uh, a forest, and then kind of a panoramic, immense landscape in kind of the 
remaining, I don't know, 20% of, of the painting. That view is unusual enough that it really stuck out to me when I when I read through the catalog. What is Hall's, who, who you know, is not known as a landscape painter, of course, doing there by including those those kind of striking mix of landscape views? Painters in the 17th century in Holland of family group portraits either did so in an interior setting or indeed in an exterior landscape setting. And, and Hals opted for the, the landscape setting in all four instances, although the Cincinnati painting has some interior motifs, a chair, a, um, some still life elements, but there's still a landscape there in the background. No landscape is topographically identifiable. Even the church steeple in the Toledo Brussels composition, we don't know exactly where that is. Sometimes, certainly in 18th century English family portraiture, the families depicted in a, in a known region, their own property with the country estate in the background. Speaking to your inquiry, Hals placed his families either at his own doing or at the request of these families, I opt for Hals's thinking, out of doors to just suggest their middle class, upper middle class ability to even wander into the countryside all dressed up and have their painting, their portraits taken, a verb that sounds photographic, but you find that even used in 17th century inventories of, of portraits being rendered. The verb is often taken. And so it's a, it's a pictorial matter, but there are also iconographic, symbolic levels. I've alluded to the church being redolent of the belief of the family, that tipped over bucket in the foreground of the Toledo painting with a lot of apples coming out. I hoped so very much there would have been 14 apples, but there aren't. That's fecundity. The ivy in the lower left behind the child added by Solomon de Bry, as the ivy and other floral motifs in the Rijksmuseum painting of Isaac Massa and his wife, and that's a wedding portrait, in fact, we strongly surmise. Um, these are allusions to steadfastness, faithfulness. Um, so the landscape setting, which you asked me about, allows for symbolism to enter in. And then one postscript remark on this point, there are some art historians, Seymour Slive, in fact, has put it in print, that believe conceivably the landscapes in the four paintings you've just asked me about that we have in our exhibition may have been painted by a different artist, one Peter Moline, M-O-L-I-J-N. The jury's out on that, but I do know scholarship is addressing this very point. Lawrence Nichols, thanks so much. I appreciate it, Tyler. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.